what this does is tether Bitcoin to reality. It tethers Bitcoin to the physical yes. world. And I think this is what separates proof of stake with things like Ethereum. And to be honest, even the US dollar and all of these other digital forms of centralized money and Bitcoin is that for the first time in history, we are the way to tether something digital to the physical world, which means that we've made it finite. It is truly finite. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Hey there, and thanks for stopping by Chapter 5 in our Bitcoin Basics series. This is a joint effort between myself, Dan, and Josh here at Blue Collar Bitcoin, as well as Seb Bunny and Daz B from Looking Glass Education. If you did miss parts one through four of this Bitcoin Basics series, they are linked down in the notes. In this particular discussion, we explore Bitcoin mining in proof of work. If you're brand new to Bitcoin, this is a fairly technical and dense subject, but we encourage you to stick with it, as it is vitally important to grasping Bitcoin's uniqueness. This one is a lengthier discussion, so down in the notes we have provided timestamps if you want to pick a more specific subject. The first half of this episode deals with the significance and functionality of Bitcoin mining and proof of work, and then in the second half we dive into the energy implications of Bitcoin, as well as busting common energy FUD. Additionally folks, Daz and Seb just published a book. It is titled, B is for Bitcoin, the essential guide to all things Bitcoin. The book does a particularly great job covering the technical side of Bitcoin succinctly but extensively. So if you want more detail on what we explore in this hour and a half, this book would be a great place to go next. For those of you that do have Bitcoin custody needs, you can use promo code BCB for a discount on the cold card. If you are not holding your own Bitcoin private keys, you need to start this learning process. We have all been there. It can feel like a daunting step, but it's truly not very difficult. The two of us have relied on the cold card to protect our Bitcoin private keys for years. This wallet or signing device is usable for those who are brand new to cold storage, but it's also something you can grow into and get more advanced alongside if that wets your whistle. Down in the notes, we've linked a five minute video on how to set up this device in its simplest configuration. Again, that's code BCB for a discount on the cold card. And you can find discounts on numerous CoinKite products, including the Tap Signer, Sats Card, and Block Lock at our affiliate link down in the notes. The Bitcoin conference is almost here, and the two of us cannot wait. As we like to say here at Blue Collar Bitcoin, this event is 100% guaranteed to fuck hard. The speaker lineup and education opportunities are off the charts, and the cultural experience is wildly unique. You can get 10% off tickets and passes with code BCB23. That's BCB23. We'll see you in Miami, May 18th to the 20th. Plebs, welcome back in. It is Bitcoin Basics, episode numero cinco. That time of the month where Daz and Seb are in the studio and we get to talk about some of the fundamentals. Last time we were on here, episode four, the intention was to do how Bitcoin works in one foul swoop. We got about halfway through that. Daz recognized that there was no freaking way we could tackle it all in one conversation. Our bladders wouldn't allow that. So we have split it. The first part, episode four, we covered nodes and I guess you could generically say distributed ledgers. And today, the focus, gentlemen, is going to be on proof of work 
and Bitcoin mining. Big topic. We're glad you're here. Before we get into the uh, nitty gritty, how is everybody? Going good, boys. This is uh, one of the best topics, I think, for, for um, Bitcoin in general. It's one of the rabbit holes that many people dive down and uh, really cements what makes Bitcoin unique and, and a powerful um, force to be reckoned with. But uh, aside from that, going well. Uh, just experienced a scam, which I'll let Seb just say g'day first, and then I can uh, let you guys in on uh, what happened in the in the little family of the of the bees this week. Over to over Seb. <laughs> no, I, I couldn't agree more, Daz. I think that when I understood Bitcoin mining, I think that is when you feel as if you're opening up the Pandora's box that is Bitcoin. Mm. Suddenly, before that, I thought it was honestly just. This bit of a, like, I felt there was value there, but I didn't truly understand it. And I felt there was the potential for it to be a scam. I was just like, how does this really work? And then when you understand Bitcoin mining, that's when you're like, wow, this is, this is unique. This is it's able to do something that we previously have not been able to, which is obviously proof of work. And we're going to dive into why this is important. But yeah, this is, this is where it really turned my head when I, and when I started understanding Bitcoin was when I dug into mining. We were discussing this a little bit before we clicked record, which is, I mean, it's been a while since I really dug into these concepts and they are intimidating to people who are looking at them at first blush. And it's easy to forget a lot of these details as you move on, say a couple of years, three years after you've done the deep dive on this, it's easy to forget some of those little details that really grab you again and pull you back in to make you realize what makes this thing so special. And we're going to, we're going to do our best to make this is simple and easy to understand and also dive a little deeper for other people. But if any of this goes over your head, we'll have some resources in the notes as well to help you guide yourself through this stuff. I would say for me, guys, this is the hardest part of Bitcoin for me to still understand and digest. And it mm-hmm. certainly was in the beginning. And I think even having a fairly simple grasp of the significance of proof of work is the, the gateway to understanding Bitcoin's uniqueness. If we were to talk about whatever the phrase Bitcoin maximalism means, that for most people centers around a logical commitment to the necessity of proof of work and an understanding that for a monetary protocol, it's very likely that only one proof of work protocol will win. And we may cover that some in this episode. But this whole topic, one of the most challenging to understand, one of the most uh, important to understand. And I think for a lot of Bitcoiners, I totally agree, Seb. It's the moment where it clicks and they go, holy fuck and this thing gets even deeper and deeper like we'll talk about how proof of work is essential to enforcing immutability and supply cap but then the second layer is getting into all the energy implications and all that it's an insanely deep and vast subject that is difficult to understand as we said multiple times through this series i am confident we will not do it full justice but we'll give it a go so Daz, um, fill us in on the story. What happened with these scumbags? Yeah, uh, people preying on people's emotions. So our little, uh, the Daz B family, um, I was getting teamed up on three against one to get a new puppy. Yeah, dude, you lost that fight before it started. I was only, I was only buying time, so inevitability. Uh, so yeah, we got, unfortunately, Mrs. B uh, fell for a bit of a Facebook scam. Apparently it's pretty rife, so it's a good sort of word of, word of warning for uh, everyone out there. Um, don't trust anything on the internet, right? Uh, and, you know, it's it's one of those things with, with Bitcoiners where you hold that true, don't trust, verify. Mrs. B is a, is a, is a Bitcoiner. Um, 
probably not as hardcore as us. Uh, of course she is. How could she not be? You'd, you'd be divorced if she wasn't a Bitcoiner. <laughs> <laughs> but she, she, she's probably still a little bit too trusting of the, uh, of the, of the world that we've left behind kind of thing, right? So, um, wow. yeah, no, and, and to her credit, it's a, it was a pretty elaborate scheme. So these people um, were on our local um, dog breeder's site. She's got a very specific breed that, she's, that she wants to go um, chase after and, Looking at this guy's profile, he'd been around for years with various dogs um, and looked like he was like a professional breeder, right? So different different types of dogs and all this sort of thing. And that's probably the first red flag was like he had probably too many types of different dogs, right? Um, so easy easy to look back through the clues now and uh, backwards assess where, where things went wrong. But um, anyway, so he had these puppies for sale and reasonable price which sort of sucked her in uh, for a start you know probably another red flag was, was a little bit cheaper than the other ones we we're looking at and um you know he had photos he had videos um and looks like they just troll through other people's groups and actually engage in conversations with um other breeders and get their content and just reshare through like facebook messenger uh so anyway um she, she put a 500 dollar deposit down to hold this dog and um, this guy lived a couple of hours away, so we we're all teed up. We cancelled a trip this this weekend to go and jump in the car and go and pick up this dog. And damn, and uh, and then yeah, find out that dog doesn't doesn't exist. And uh, I did some detective work, you know, and found out that uh, he had some images of this dog that had a vet in the background. And I'm just looking at the vet. There's a vet had a logo, and it was like the map of Tasmania, which is you know obviously. A long, long way away from where we live, and uh, yes. Anyway, oh, I'm sorry to hear about that, man. Yeah, yeah. So that that was just more. They're already grown emotionally attached to this puppy, you know. So that was probably the most devastating part of 500 boxes. And it was fiat, right? You lost fiat, not bitcoin. Yeah, I lost fiat. I didn't lose oh, any bitcoin. Thank God. Yeah. Oh, I good. Just, the uh, Dan, have we ever told the story about the uh, crypto um, crypto graffiti piece of art I bought? No. I thought I, was, I thought I got totally scammed on this. Josh got worked over. Josh is a soft target, by the way. If you want to scam someone, <laughs> dude, I, this was this was like heart wrenching for me because it was Bitcoin I sent. I found this. I found, I saw this thing at the conference. It's the one I have on the wall back here. And I decided a couple months later I wanted to buy it. Found it was it was a legit looking version of the Bitcoin conference website. So I was like, oh, they still have one left. I'm buying it. I sent the Bitcoin. So then right after sending it, I'm thinking like, this is kind of strange. Why would they still have this left over? There's only 21 of these made. So I started reaching out to people uh, at Bitcoin Magazine. And one of our good buddies there was like, hey, man, I'm sorry to tell you this, but pretty sure you got scammed. And Dan and I were like, like I was a wreck for like 24 hours. Like this, I thought for sure I got fucked. And it turned that out was that this was like puppy, a- That was his puppy, That was my his puppy. puppy that he lost. Yeah. It turned out though, I got lucky because it was a dead version of their website that they, they were able to dig it up and find it. And they actually had it and they sent it to me. So it all worked out. But I thought I was fucked. That was actually Chris Alamo that flagged that. Alamo, like, it was. Uh, shout out to Chris Alamo. Alamo is just like smarter than us. And A, he's smarter than us. B, he's able to spend more time on Bitcoin than we are. So he just like is kind enough and generous enough to like DM us when we do dumb shit. He'll be like, hey, your episode <laughs> right, is just yeah. fucking labeled wrong. Or like, hey, Josh, you probably got scammed. Or like, you guys are doing this wrong. And Chris, we appreciate you keep doing that because we need a chaperone. Yeah, he's helped us out more than once. Yeah, he guides us. He's a blue collar Bitcoin chaperone, basically, is what Chris Alamo is. Yep. Can't wait to see him in Miami. So be careful out there, especially with these AI scams that are happening now. Did you guys hear about the lady who they got a voice recording of her daughter? They used AI to make her voice screaming in the background. They told her that they had her at gunpoint or something, and they had her send 
think it was like ten thousand dollars and then she found out afterwards because her daughter was in mexico on vacation then she found out like an hour later her daughter was completely fine they had used an ai model to create her voice in the background and scared the living shit out of this poor lady these things are getting real man yeah we should leverage these scams on our coworkers, josh like you know, we should hatch a scam on Jim telling you know, some voice recording from his doctor saying we can boost his testosterone or something if he gives yeah. us a Bitcoin. Something about his hemorrhoids, uh, maybe. Yeah. If I, can, if I can just make one more pivot before we jump into this mining stuff, is uh, and I might have brought this up even on the last pod, but the importance of like uh, the groundbreaking shift that is NOSTA and this whole concept of, um, you know, private and public key pairing. Uh, to, for signing and I think it's going to become even more imperative as we move into this age of AI and deep fakes and all this sort of shit is is it's a fundamental if I didn't sign the message I didn't fucking say it you know and it's a really profound profound shift mm. and I think it's going to become more and more important it's going to become true of every kind of media you're going to be well hopefully we're going to be able to use public key to actually verify this came from the correct source yep and it'll be a cat and mouse game I'm sure for quite a while before people figure this out I didn't realize as well, there's a, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Again, I'm useless with names. There's a Netflix documentary. It's talking about money and it dives into how the IRS monitor fraudulent tax returns. And in mathematics, we have a natural distribution of numbers. So there's going to be the most ones. There's going to be the second most twos, third most threes, and so on down to nine. And it's kind of like an exponential decay in the amount of the frequency of each of these numbers and what's interesting is they overlay this over to all your tax returns and so if you jig with your tax return or you jig with a jpeg and change the jpeg or you jig with a video or you jig with anything it messes up the natural distribution of numbers in nature and so it's really interesting they can spot fraud just because it doesn't align with reality which is interesting i thought we uh we have to sign a glucometer log at work every morning so we have to check that the glucometer is working and that it there's like a low and a high reading we have to check. So the, <laughs> nobody, of course, of course, nobody does this, but it's very easy to just be like, all right, here's a random number for the upper. Josh and I do it. We're yeah, just talking we about always the other people. check it. Right. But you can you. So I've told people like the most common made up number is always an even number. So if you're going to make up the glucometer numbers more than often, use an odd number, because for some reason, humans have a propensity to just think. Or no, I'm sorry. That's backwards. Use the even, odd right? numbers. Yeah, yeah, the odd numbers people choose because they think odd numbers are more random. They just feel more random to us, even though they're not. So That's you always weird. choose an even number if you're going to make up a number. So uh, as an aside, but yeah, we always check the glucometer. Of course. write down the proper number. Does everyone on this listens to the show love the chief disclaimers that come out on this show? Like, <laughs> we'll, we'll get into something. We'll be like, okay, wait, but chief, if you're listening, X or Y, that was a chief disclaimer. Um, right. okay. Today's topic, mining. We've got, <laughs> I have freaking seven pages of notes in front of me, which Dude, we've already pissed I, away 12 minutes and we didn't even get into this thing yet. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, when I do this many notes, they become completely useless. It's just an exercise yeah. of going over it in my head, but let's start with what is Bitcoin mining? Whoever wants to tackle that first, and then we'll, we'll get in on it. We can pretty much just go through that and then call it a day, I think, at like 15 minutes. They should be able to handle it. You know, (laughs) it's one of those things where I feel as if giving a little bit of a back step as to where Bitcoin fits in in this, uh, sorry, where mining fits in in the whole kind of concept of Bitcoin. So let's just step back into the last episode and we discussed distributed ledger technology. 
Now, if people remember, distributed ledger technology is what allows Bitcoin to be decentralized. And so if you have, let's say, Visa, Visa has the ability to verify transactions and they can do all of this on a central ledger. But the problem is we have to rely on Visa and that they have our best interests at heart because they could change that ledger and all of a sudden our bank balance is not good or our credit card balance is not going to show what we really have. And so how do you get around this? And this is one of uh, kind of the innovations that kind of Satoshi kind of pieced together with mining and all of these other things. One of them is distributed ledger technology. And so the idea behind distributed ledger technology is that let's just say we've got Dan, Josh, Daz and myself. Now, distributed ledger, let's say we all hold a copy of a ledger. And on that ledger is a list of transactions. So we can determine who owns what. Now, if Dan decides, you know what, I want to kind of jimmy rig how much Bitcoin I have. So I'm going to alter my ledger. He can go and alter it. But the problem is, there's three of us, myself, Josh, and, and Daz, who also have that record of that ledger. So we can compare our ledgers against Dan's and realize that, that he has altered his ledger because it does not align with consensus. It's three against one. So distributed ledger is just simply the movement of, uh, or dis the distribution of ledgers, whether that is domestically or globally. When we're talking about Bitcoin, we're talking about globally, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of these ledgers distributed globally so that any one individual can go and alter the ledger if they want to, but no one else is going to accept it because it doesn't align with the majority. Now, where mining comes in is we've got this uh, ledger that's got a list of transactions and we can determine who owns what. Where mining comes in is how do we update this ledger? And that's what mining does. Mining allows us to add transactions to the ledger, but we've got to figure out an effective way to add those transactions. And that's what we're going to discuss throughout this whole episode is how do we add these transactions effectively? Yes, it, this is all about reaching consensus, right? So we've we've kind of covered in the last episode that one of the main responsibilities of nodes and node operators is auditing the accuracy of the transactions, making sure that all the Bitcoin consensus rules are followed, that the UTXO set is accurate, that things are unchanged. Audit, I think, is the word that comes to mind there. But then the question is, when you have this massive, globally distributed, huge, growing node network, how in the world do those nodes reach consensus on which blocks get added to the blockchain and which transactions are officially settled? And that is the proof of work solution is how do we reach globally distributed consensus internally, right. not externally, not with an external oracle, how within the system itself do we reach consensus? And that's the solution. Well, Satoshi didn't invent proof of work. It was invented before, but he added that to this mixture. To, to create Bitcoin, and that's key to understand. Just off the top of this, proof of work was invented by Adam Back, and it was in order to keep spam from just destroying these email systems that they had, these central servers, because people could just potentially send massive amounts of email um, and they could lock up a server. So the idea was to create a cost to having, having to send an email. And then Satoshi basically took this idea and decided it should be costly in order to mine Bitcoin, because then you can incentivize the system to keep it less capable of being attacked. So you you basically create a system where you incentivize these people to mine by having to cost energy to do it. And then if they win this mining game that they play, they get paid out for it. So you're kind of aligning all of the game theoretical pieces in a way that allows people to do what is best for the system in general and what is best for everybody, which is to be honest and give them an incentive to do the right thing instead of cheat the system, which is a very important part of this. This is, um, besides actually adding transactions, making it actually costly mm. to, to cheat 
is uh, a very important aspect of this as well. There's a, probably just a few more concepts we should introduce before diving in. And one of those is mempool. Um, so basically, that's just a pool that sits off to the side for transactions waiting to be appended um, to, to the blockchain through that mining process, which we'll elaborate on. Um, and the other one is um, just talking about the halving, just really quick, um, and introducing that concept of block reward again. So um, Bitcoin mining, the protocol, uh, is deliberately set to only append a, a new block to the blockchain once every 10 minutes. So it's very deliberate. And, and why they do that is for the supply issuance. So we've spoken um, in previous episodes that there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin um, supply cap. Uh, that's controlled through the protocol. Uh, and currently, there's only about 19 million um, in circulation, just over. Uh, and how new Bitcoin gets introduced uh, up to that supply cap is through the process of Bitcoin mining. And that's why we're deliberately trying to control once every 10 minutes so that a whole flood of uh, resources don't get pushed into Bitcoin um, and swamp it and, and completely saturate that supply issuance. We want it very slow and deliberate once every 10 minutes, and the 21 millionth Bitcoin is not going to be mined until the year 2140. Something to, to zoom out before we get into the mechanics of how it works. And that's, I'm going to dig into an area that I feel like I misunderstood mining for quite some time. When you first get introduced to mining, and I think this is where the word mining itself is confusing. The initial thought is that this is all just about the creation of new Bitcoin. And that is one of the incentives behind mining, and it is how new coins enter circulation, and we'll get into that. But I think it's helpful to, to reframe it a little bit and, and view it, and I'm a credit to Andreas Antonopoulos for this idea, but Bitcoin mining is essentially immutability as a service, right? If we are going to enforce a set of monetary rules that are not going to change, this protocol needs to not just be tamper evident, it needs to be tamper proof. And those are words we might double back to later. But how do you create a mechanism, an incentive mechanism that discourages people from and makes it extremely difficult to change the ledger, ledger in any way, shape or form? That is what mining accomplishes. And you have to understand how incredibly difficult that is, because even the word immutability is loaded. Theoretically, everything in the world changes to some extent. And to say that Bitcoin is fully immune to any change in the future would be naive. But in the digital sphere, this is the hardest digital database or ledger in the world to date ever created to make any changes to. And that is because of Bitcoin mining and proof of work. And we'll fill in how it accomplishes that. But essentially, what these miners are doing is they're stacking work that makes Bitcoin tamper-proof, extremely hard to change physically. There has to be actual physical output, energy expenditure to change this protocol. And so the main point I'm making there is it's not just about creating new Bitcoin. It's not just about consensus. It's about making it a robust protocol that is truly immutable and extremely difficult to change. And it's that third component that I think a lot of people miss. And some of that's because of just the labeling's not all that great and calling it mining. Well, I think you make such a good point and you touch on the incentive side of things. And I think the incentive is when we step back, and this, this is one area that took me a long time to understand as well, as you kind of mentioned, Dan, which is the fact that if you look at, say, Visa, Visa being centralized can adjust the ledger whenever they feel. The problem with trying to decentralize Visa is 
who is now going to verify these transactions? And who is going to, like, how are we going to incentivize these individuals to act in the best interest of those that are transacting on the Bitcoin network? And what I think is fascinating about Bitcoin is the fact that for the first time in history, we have a way of verifying transactions in a decentralized way. And at a very high level, and we can start diving into this when we talk about kind of how Bitcoin mining works, but a very high level, what you've got to do is if you knew who was going to verify the transaction, then that individual, if they wanted to, could act in their own self-interest and do something that is against the interest of those that are transacting on the network. So how do you get around that? Well, you have to randomize who is verifying transactions and you have to reward those individuals. So if those individuals are being rewarded to verify transactions, but they don't know whether or not they're going to be the one who is going to be able to verify the transaction, then all of a sudden they have to act in the best interest of the network because they obviously have to play by the rules in order to be rewarded. But at the same time, because they don't know whether or not they're going to be the ones that are verifying the transactions, naturally you've got this randomized process. And that is what I think is so fascinating about Bitcoin is we've randomized who is actually verifying transactions and they're rewarding that individual. So now it's in their best interest to play by the rules because if they do not, they're going to lose that incentive. And if they lose that incentive, what the, what's the point in consuming all of that energy and doing all of this work for nothing? And so you've got this system of randomization, which is unique to Bitcoin, which I think is phenomenal. Just one other thing to piggyback there. I, I think another way to say that is just the settlement of the Bitcoin blockchain and the transactions on Bitcoin is a free and open market. Not only is it random, but, it, but it's inherently capitalist, right? There is no, the holders of the token are not the ones that are settling. They may be doing both, but they're two different actors, right, that, that check each other. And, and the, it's the checks and balances of Bitcoin that make it so robust and anti-fragile. And so transaction settlement is this random, relentlessly free market, global free market that is really, if you zoom out on a long enough time frame and you understand how these dynamics work, it is extremely difficult to perpetually centralize. It could be centralized for a period of time, but if there's profitability in another region, if an opportunity opens up, there's no way to stop that. And so it's that that freedom, that openness, and that randomness that make that check and balance, the mining check and balance, so constant and hard to manipulate. And that's very different than the rest of crypto assets, which we may get to in this episode or a future one, but it's a key distinction. Yeah, I'm just going through in my head the best way to tackle this. And, and like we mentioned in the last episode, it's always hard. Like, it's so much intertwining concepts here. It's, it's, it truly is a, a mind-blowing protocol. But um, I guess the, the easiest place to start is just to start to describe how a block functions and, and, and how this mining process works. So one of the easiest ways to understand this for, for, for my mind when going through this anyway is, is just to um, think of basically three, three concepts. So we've got input data, we've got this concept called a nonce, and we've got an output hash, okay? So this, um, the Bitcoin blockchain uses SHA-256 algorithm. So it's a complex ma mathematical equation, basically, whereby if you input a series of data into this algorithm, it will s spit out a hexadecimal um, hash. It's actually in base 58, I, I believe, um, is just a numbering system. It consists of letters, capitals, lowercase, and numerals, zero through nine. Uh, and basically there's 58 characters that make up that whole subset, and they all have a corresponding numerical value from zero through to 58. So 
Why that's important is the output hash for this input function. So if we put this data into this algorithm and it spits out this hash, the fundamental thing to understand is that output hash is nothing more than a number. It's a numerical, it's a really, really large number, but it's a number nonetheless. Now, why that's important is because the Bitcoin protocol has this um, concept input uh, in, in into it uh, known as the difficulty adjustment. And basically what that means is it has a target value. So for a block to be valid, we have to get a hash output from this algorithm below a certain target number. And that's what we're basically trying to achieve. This is the whole concept of this mining is that all of these computers are working towards finding a combination of data that hits below this target number. Now, how they do that is this field called the nonce. So if we take a subset of data uh, and inside that data, let's call, there's a whole heap of information in there. Let's call it transactions. Let's call it block headers. And there's a little bit of nuance to that, but it'll do for our analogy. We're going to take this data and then the nature of this algorithm, um, basically, it's true that there exists a subset of data when appended to this data that will result, when we put it through this algorithm, it will result in a output hash that is below a certain target number. But the funny thing is, is we have no fucking way of predicting or knowing or calculating what that nonce is, what that subset of data is. So what these basically all these computers are doing, all these mining computers are doing, is guessing. It is the biggest fucking game of hide and seek the world has ever known. Uh, it is basically just them taking turns, doing this trillions of times per second in order to try and guess what that number is. So we, we grab a subset, we grab some data, and then we're trying to guess. Now, Basically, it's as simple as going, is that number zero? And they put it into the algorithm and it spits out a target number that uh, it spits out a hash and that hash might be above it. So it's like, oh, it wasn't zero. Okay, is it one? Is it two? Is it three? Is it four? Is it 489 trillion, 460, you know, blah, 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 and so on. They're constantly trying to guess what that subset of data is, um, putting it through the algorithm and trying to find an output hash that is below that target value. When they find one that's suitable they broadcast that out to the other network and it's kind of like this concept of a zero knowledge proof whereby um you can broadcast that solution to everybody and it's very very easy for the rest of the network to backwards look and verify that that is indeed a true a solution M make it sort of akin to a rubik's cube so you know those whiz kids who grab a Rubik's cube. It's all jumbled up, and they go within seven seconds, and they present the solution. I have no fucking idea how those whiz kids, what steps they took in order to to come up with the solution. But once it's solved, it's very easy to broadcast and prove that they did indeed solve it. And that's sort of the concept behind that mining. They find a nonce, they put it through the algorithm. Once they find the output hash that satisfies you know, below the target number, um, then they broadcast it to everyone else and it's very easy to verify that yeah, that is indeed a, a true a true solution. Daz, I just want to say that uh, you definitely know how to solve the Rubik's Cube. Daz, is, <laughs> if you guys don't know, is I've a massive that. Rubik's Cuber. It's incredible. Um, before we, we go much further than hashes, I just want to give a couple of, uh, just, just to explain hashes a tad bit uh, further. There's, there's two characteristics that hashes have that are very important to understand. Number one is, they're a one-way function. So they're a mathematical function that you can put in any amount of information and they will spit out 
if you use the same information from Daz's computer, Seb's computer, Dan's computer, it will spit out the exact same thing on the other side. And it will be nearly impossible, um, at least with the computing power that we have now, to reverse that. So you couldn't easily reverse that back and figure out what information Daz used or Seb used in order to create that function. The other important thing about hash functions is, is that they're deterministic. So you're always getting the same output with the same input. And that's important in Bitcoin because each, each one of these blocks, what they do is all of the information, each transaction, everything that's in that block determines the hash for that block. And that block gets hashed to the next block. So everything can be forward and reversed so that you can verify all the way back to the Genesis block that each block is verified. So the fingerprint from each block is easily determined by anyone who wants to verify that. So that's just an important, a couple of important things to understand about hash functions before we move on. A couple more points. Um, uh, it, it's also important to note that it doesn't matter the size of the input data. It always results in the same length or, uh, of, of right. hash so as far as uh, characters are concerned in, the, in that base 58. So, for example, you could basically go and copy the whole entire contents of Wikipedia, put it into that algorithm, and it's still going to put out the same 64-character hexadecimal output. And I also think that this is where it is fascinating because this is, once you understand how a hash works, you also start to understand how Bitcoin becomes immutable. Because when you realize how by feeding information in through this hash function, and the hash function is spitting out a hash, you know that that information has to be organized in that exact same way to spit out the, the same hash. Let's just say we have a block with 2,000 transactions, and one of those transactions is Dan and I sending, Dan is sending me one Bitcoin. Now, let's just say I want to Jimmy rig it, and so I get 10 Bitcoin instead of one Bitcoin. I can go and alter that transaction and say 10 Bitcoin, but just by altering that 10 Bitcoin out of those 2,000 transactions, all of a sudden, I'm going to alter the hash. So let's just say we've got uh, that transaction was three blocks ago. If I went to go alter that, then all of a sudden that three blocks, that block would become invalid because it no longer matches the original hash that is uh, recorded in the preceding block. And so this is how they kind of link together. The reason why the block is called a blockchain is because each block is recording the previous block hash. To think about it um, in a really simple manner, one of the ways that I've kind of thought about it is it's almost like you have a safe within a safe within a safe all the way down. Each block is its own individual safe with its own key. And you have to. So if you were going to try to break into the system um, in, in the analog world, it would almost be like picking the lock of the first safe, picking the lock of the second safe. And you can imagine how quickly that would become very, very time consuming and onerous to have to break into each successive lock. And then think about the fact that right now, I don't know what block height we're at, like 780 something thousand. There's 780 some thousand safes that have been built around this uh, all the way back to the Genesis block. I, I think this is also where I'm going to double back to, to some phrases I used earlier, which is tamper evident and tamper proof. A blockchain is tamper evident. So if you change a block 100,000 blocks ago, it's evident everywhere after that point if you change one transaction at any point in all of bitcoin's history dan's node josh's node seb's node daz's node immediately knows about it you are out of sync with the network that is tamper evidence and that's a big deal blockchain is a cool word and it's a cool idea and it's a 
big pillar of Bitcoin, but it's only one side of the triangle. So now we need to come back to this, this word tamper proof. And to do that, I'm going to double on the word hash to clarify for someone that's confused. A hash requires energy. It requires real world energy for a computer to guess, for a computer to do anything requires energy. And that's something that I think a lot of human beings are removed from. You plug a prompt into ChatGPT, you watch a movie on Netflix, you send an email, that requires a, a, a server somewhere, hardware somewhere is doing that and it's requiring energy. Okay, so these guesses for these Bitcoin miners to make these guesses requires energy. And the more people competing on that free market of trying to settle Bitcoin transactions, the more people that enter that game, that free market, the network demands more energy. And that's what we'll get to with the difficulty adjustment. But this is where the work comes in for someone that's confused. These computers are performing work that requires actual energy. One analogy I've, I thought of, and I, I guess I want another, there's a couple analogies I think we should throw in here, but I'm going to start with this one. It's just as rudimentary as I can make it of these miners settle transactions, and in order to settle them, they have to accomplish this task of making all these guesses to get below this number that the network has said they need to get below. So it's akin to for you to make an entry or to add a block or say add a Lego to a tower, you have to go run a mile. If you want to add a Lego, you got to go run a mile, right? So you want you run your mile, you come back, you add a Lego. To add another one, you got to run a mile, add a Lego. Running a mile is not that big a deal. But if you want to change the Lego 28 layers down, you got to run 28 miles. And that's essentially what the nodes demand, right? The nodes are the auditors, and they're saying, yeah. you need to do this much work to add anything to our blockchain. And this is where the work adds up, because every layer you go down to undo that, you have to do all that work that was done previously. So like I said, if you want to change a Lego that's 15 layers down, you got to run all 15 miles to get down there to change that Lego. So to piggyback on your analogy, you're also running against other competitors and only the winner gets to put a Lego on there. Right. And, you know, so you have to beat them all 28 miles each time to successively get yourself back to that original block. And this is a little bit blunt of a description, but I think it's it's directionally correct. The other component back to the tamper evidence, everybody knows you're doing this. So if you're trying to fuck with the Lego that's 28 layers down, most everybody on the network knows that you're trying to fuck with it and is incentivized to make sure that you don't change that Lego. When you're talking about the game theory aspect of this as well, it's when you're incentivized that you're going to get paid to instead, okay, you won the mile long race. Now you've got the choice. Are you going to remove a Lego? And, and going to have an invalid block because you probably won't win the next race. So you wasted your energy. Or are you going to add your next block, get paid for it, and move along? I mean, that's back to the game theory and why this works so well. Because we're taking selfish human incentive and we're pointing it in the direction of useful work. No, and, and just kind of tying it back to that point that I brought up a little earlier, which is how does Bitcoin outcompete something like Visa, which is centralized? And that is where exactly as you guys have just described, we are not incentivized to try and cheat. If we try and cheat, we're not going to get our reward. And if we're not going to get our reward, then why are we doing all this work? And so what Bitcoin does is it incentivizes us to act in the best interests of the individuals and it randomizes who it is that actually verifies these transactions. So you never know. So it's not in their best interest to change the transaction. And so that is where I think Bitcoin is so incredible is for the first time in history we've got a way to randomize the verification of transactions while 
uh, incentivizing these individuals who are verifying these transactions to act in the interest of the users, which is phenomenal. Yes, and, and I kind of just, um, I think it's important just to underscore, we've already explained how that works, but um, I, I find it just, just so imperative to, to, to make sure that it's clear in everyone's minds how the chain gets built out. So the output hash of a block is then used as part of the input data to the next block. So um, you guys mentioned before, if you just change one of those transactions or even if you added a decimal point to that data, so if you've got this block of data within your block and you, you add a decimal point where you change a lowercase a to a capital A, it changes the whole output hash and it's totally, you cannot predict what that output is. It doesn't like, it doesn't just change one of those characters of the hash. There's no way to predict what effect that's going to do with the output hash. That's one of the most interesting things about the way this works. There's um, hash calculators you can play with. And I was messing around with one last night. We'll, we'll link in the show notes to one of these. So you can experiment yourself. But you could make a string of random numbers, change just one of, say, 50 numbers. And the output will be not similar in any way. It'll be drastically different, like unpredictably right. different, which is obviously why it's so useful. But it's, it's just a very interesting thing to watch happen. Um, yeah, it is, it's cool. And I think playing with these things helps you understand this better. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, there's there's actually a really phenomenal one. Um, AndersBrandworth.com. He's got a phenomenal tutorial series that takes you right through. Um, you can play with it, um, and there's a video series that accompanies it, and it takes you right through this concept about building a block, um, how the algorithms work, and you can play around with um, different inputs and outputs. Um, and and as far as that chain's concerned, how we build that blockchain, I just um, you know mentioned that the output for hash for one block forms part of the input data for the next block so that if you change one character in this block it changes the output hash which then breaks the chain because this now the input data inherently you've changed the input data for the next block so then you know on it goes down the chain one change back one decimal point change right back in you know block 600,000 will break the whole entire chain the way forward because we've we've basically fucked with the output hash of every single block that proceeds or that, that comes after that rather uh, in that chain. And that's where the nodes are, are, are constantly monitoring that and saying, hey, we've got a guy out here who's fucking with the blockchain. He's ruined all the hashes. The chain's broken. He's out of consensus. Let's just bar him from the network. And um, you guys also mentioned this, this, this concept of the work, right? So if you were to um, picture, say there's 10, I've got 10,000 computers on this network trying to solve the, um, to, to find a nonce that satisfies the target value. All of that energy that's expended, and, and we mentioned like right back at the start here that Bitcoin block, uh, the Bitcoin protocol is very deliberate in controlling the timing. We want one every 10 minutes. So you can imagine, for me, in order to go back and change any of the, the hashing and remine a block, I've got to expend the same amount of, nep, um, of energy that 10,000 computers just spent in order because they 10,000 computers just took 10 minutes to find the nonce because we made it that hard to do we made a target value so um low that it took 10,000 computers 10 minutes i've got to now go and expend the same amount of work i've got to now go and find 10,000 computers myself and all i'm going to be able to do is change my version of the history you guys are still going to go no way like you know uh, uh, you're wasting your time. The only advantage that I might be able to, to, to come up with is a double spend event in the last block for my own coins. 
So that's really the because the the other side of the equation here is this is this concept of the mempool. So when somebody I want to send Bitcoin to somebody, I've got to have the private key that matches up to that public address for the balance of that of that Bitcoin. I want to send Josh that Bitcoin. I've got to sign that transaction and it gets uploaded to the mempool. The mempool is a pool of transactions waiting to be appended to the blockchain. But if I don't have the private key, that's that's useless. If I'm a bad actor and I do have that computational power in order to be able to solve some blocks really quickly and, fo- and throw that at that hash, all I'm going to be able to do is append another block for the same amount of Bitcoin that I had in my own, that, that, that I own the keys for. I, I can't hack Seb's key and spend his Bitcoin. I can't hack Dan's key and spend his Bitcoin. It's, it's totally useless. So the only thing I'm going to be able to do is append another block in quick succession to, to the current block if, if I own that um, computational power. I don't know if I explained that well, but um, maybe you guys could reform that a little bit. That's a really good point. There's limits to what you can do. The other thing is you can't just, even if you had 51% of the, the hash rate, you can't just suddenly change consensus rules. Like you're up against this whole other cohort of auditors that are just constantly making sure a certain rule set is enforced. But yeah, I think there there is a little bit of a misnomer that like, once you gain the majority of the hash rate, which, by the way, would be insanely difficult, even if you just quantify the amount of energy and say, well, someone can come up with that. You have to get the specific infrastructure, the specific type of computers. Those are very constrained by supply chains. But even if you could overcome all that, once you're there, once you're to the top of that hill, there's actually not an infinite or even that many levers you can pull once you're there. Well, not to mention if you're holding that much energy or that much mining power, you have a 50-50 chance right now of winning every single block, right? So you're winning every other block. You're getting paid 6.25 Bitcoins every 20 minutes because you're winning every other one, logically. Um, or you could just maybe reverse one transaction that would likely be much less than that. I mean, you're there's it just logically makes no sense unless you just have a reason to try to destroy Bitcoin is really the only good reason to do it. So you'd have to be a state actor. You'd have to be, say... China before 2021, when they, you know, kicked all mining out of the country, if they would have just state owned all of that stuff, tried to do a concerted 51% attack, that's the, I don't know, most viable thing I could have seen in the last few years that could have been a real, real problem. But they did the stupid thing and they just kicked them all out. I think one thing that always, I don't know, I found it the first time I heard it, I don't know where I saw it, it was on Twitter or something, and it basically said that if you own, say, 6.25 Bitcoin, at some point, for 10 minutes, every single miner in the world was on your side working for you. <laughs> That's a cool like, way to look I think at that it. is just absolutely fascinating. It's, a, it's a super fascinating. If you earn 0.625 Bitcoin, 10% of the mining network was working for you at some point. And I think going back to kind of what you're talking about, Daz, which I think is really, really fascinating uh, when we're discussing the energy output of being able to mine, is that what this does is tether Bitcoin to reality. It tethers Bitcoin to the physical yes. world. And I think this is what separates proof of stake with things like Ethereum. And to be honest, even the US dollar and all of these other uh, digital forms of centralized money and Bitcoin is that for the first time in history, we are the way to tether something digital to the physical world, which means that we've made it finite. It is truly finite because there is only so much fi- uh, energy in the world to put that towards mining. On top of that, there is a protocol on top that limits the amount of Bitcoin to 21 million. And being able to tether it to reality, that is why people refer to it as digital gold and mining. It's, it's, we're being able to mine something that is scarce and it is challenging to obtain. 
yes, man, this, this, this one foot in the informational digital and one foot in the physical is, is it's the discovery of Bitcoin. Um, I, here's a GG quote. Bitcoin is a strange beast. It lives across domains with one foot in the purely informational realm and one foot in the physical realm. And it is tethered to unforgeable real world work and energy output. That's the whole point. And that and if, if someone's sitting here at this stage in the episode going, man, you guys have thrown out a lot of words. This is really confusing. Why this is important is in the four of our viewpoints and in the market's viewpoint, mind you, this is the best way that's ever been discovered to make something digital unchangeable. Digital items are inherently easy to change. As I said earlier, they can be manipulated, copied, modified with the click of a button. Bitcoin through math and cryptography that proves real world work, it creates an abstract digital ledger and ties it to real world unforgeable physical energy output. And that is what makes this thing so freaking hard to change. Uh, we talked a little bit about the incentives that Bitcoin miners have in order to be good actors in the space. And so I want to talk a little bit about how that works and the block reward itself. Um, so if you're a miner or a mining pool and you get, um, you, you're lucky enough to be the one that strikes gold here and you get the block, you get to send that block to the nodes. The nodes all verify it. They say, yes, you won this block. So you get all of the fees that were uh, collected during that entire block space. So all of the transactions that went in, all of the people that paid a transaction fee to the miners, you collect all of that. And that can change, obviously, depending on the block, depending on all kinds of other things. But um, you also get, at this moment in time, 6.25 Bitcoins. So that's the incentive structure that's built in order for the miners to want to be good actors and do the thing that they're supposed to do and not try to attack the blockchain here. Uh, so 6.25 Bitcoins now. And then this is an important concept I'm going to introduce now, too. And this is called the halvening. So Bitcoin's got a four-year epoch. Uh, every four years, this amount of Bitcoin is reduced by half. It started at 50 Bitcoins, down to 25, down to 12 and a half. And right now we are sitting at 6.25. And that will be reduced next year in 2024 to uh, 3.125. So that's... That's also important because that's what maintains the 21 million Bitcoin limit. In successive years, it'll continue to reduce until the year 2140, as Daz mentioned earlier, when it will stop, it'll cease to give a block reward anymore. Um, and that's also, many people believe, the uh, inception for a lot of these crazy bull runs because we see the distribution of Bitcoin gets cut in half, it becomes more scarce, and then the price inevitably rises as long as people are still looking to buy Bitcoin. Um, so with just, just touching on what Josh said there with the, uh, the, the halving and the, and the cycle and the, and the run up for these bull markets, um, it kind of makes sense when you sit back and, and say, okay, if I was a, and, and mind you, the, these mining companies there are very sophisticated, well-capitalized operations. They're, they're well run. They're not just, um, you know, uh, a bunch of plebs plugging into their mum's basement. You know what I mean? They're, these are very sophisticated operations dovetailing in a, a lot of um, other energy sources of which we can, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on in the later, in later in the episode. But if you are one of these um, uh, very well-run uh, capitalist structures uh, and you're a miner and you get 6.25 Bitcoin um, for every block that you solve, it kind of just makes sense that if my... Um, expenses and my operational expenditure is remains constant 
if not going up with the rising cost of energy. And then in, you know, four years' time, oh, well, th this is due next year, actually, for the next halving, my reward's going to be reduced to 3.125. It kind of makes sense that I'm not going to actually want to part with my Bitcoin holdings for any less than what I was earning previously, right? So I had six, I had, so if, if nothing else, price should double every four years with just a, on that very rudimentary um, concept alone. Uh, I, I was just going to say really quick for someone that's confused, like the rules that we've mentioned, 21 million supply cap, you know, right now, 6.25 Bitcoin, the halving, all these things. These rules are part of the software that's running on our nodes. That's been the case since Satoshi invented this. Right. So if you're like, where, where are these rules coming from? It's the software that nodes are enforcing the auditors, right? Someone that's auditing is has a standard in mind that they're auditing to ensure that that standard's being followed. That has been set since the beginning. It's never changed. It's very unlikely to change. The nodes are the ones dictating that. And the miners are really, in a lot of ways, just at the behest of that software that's running on the largest collective sample of nodes. So I think, I think there's a couple points I made there. But one of those is that those rules are not being dictated by the miners. They're doing the bidding of the nodes who are dictating what the rules are. And I think that's an important distinction and commonly misunderstood that people think that the miners are just kind of running the game. They're not. They're just sort of the workhorse that makes the protocol immutable. Yeah, 100%. And I wanted to tie two points together that uh, Josh and Daz brought up, which is Daz a little while back talked about the difficulty adjustment. And when he was talking about the difficulty adjustment, he was referring to it as the miners obviously need to uh, expend energy to create these hashes, and these hashes have to be below a certain value. And Josh was talking about how over time, every four epoch or every four years, each epoch, the miners are rewarded. What they are rewarded is halved, and so right now they're being rewarded 6.25 uh, Bitcoin. So you could ask the question: Well, if a miner, let's just say, all of a sudden I decide to uh, pick up a bunch of energy from somewhere, I own a dam and I decide to put that all into Bitcoin and suddenly rather than mining blocks every 10 minutes, because I have so much energy and computational power, I can suddenly start mining blocks every two minutes or three minutes. All of a sudden what ends up happening is we're going to run out of Bitcoin very quickly. Instead of running out of Bitcoin and reaching 21 million at 2140, all of a sudden what we're going to find is that we're going to hit 20, uh, we're going to hit 21 million much quicker. And so that means that there has to be a mechanism to be able to regulate the supply of Bitcoin. And that mechanism is called the difficulty adjustment. And so what the difficulty adjustment does, and so as Daz mentioned, they've got to get the block hash below a certain value. What the difficulty adjustment does is every two weeks, it takes the average uh, time it took to mine a block, and it takes the average of all of those blocks over a two-week period, and then it adjusts the difficulty accordingly. And what I mean by that is, let's just say, for instance, the blocks were taking eight minutes. That means that we're going to run out of blocks quicker than we would expect. And so they've got to make that difficulty harder. So all of a sudden, that bar, which Daz is talking about, which the miners have to get below, is lowered. And so by lowering it, all of a sudden, these miners, they have to find a lower number, which is even harder. And so naturally, the, the next block, well, it could take 12 minutes. So then that difficulty adjustment is going to raise again. So because this difficulty adjustment is adjusting every single two weeks and regulating, that naturally, over the long run, you have the law of large numbers. We're going to average at a block of uh, a block every ten minutes, but that doesn't mean that we're going to get a block 
every 10 minutes. So if you click on the mempool.space, you will see some blocks are every minute. Some blocks are every 20 minutes. Uh, but in the long run, we're going to average every 10 minutes. Um, I have a little bit of a, an analogy I thought up for this difficulty adjustment too. It's, it's very simplified, but I think it might help people who are listening to this and maybe a little bit lost. 10 minutes is the target. Uh, imagine that you're playing like an arcade basketball game and you're trying to hit the, you know, you're trying to hit shots as you're throwing. This game is compensating for to try to cause you to only land a basket every 10 minutes. So if you're terrible and you're missing everything, it's going to make the hoop bigger for you. If you're incredibly good and you're nailing everything, it's going to make this hoop incredibly difficult for you to hit. And it's going to keep resizing this target for you until you're on average hitting that thing every 10 minutes. And that means that sometimes you'll get lucky and you'll hit it on the first shot. But more than likely, you're going to hit it on average 10 minutes. Sometimes it could take 20. But because this is all probabilistic, um, this hoop changing for your specific game is likely going to average 10 minutes. And that's all this difficulty adjustment is doing. It's just trying to make the average of all these computers hit that target in around 10 minutes. Yeah, I love the golf analogy you guys did in your piece you sent us about mining. Only because you're a golfer. Yeah, if one of you guys do that, let's let's throw let's throw two sports analogies here. I'm not going to steal it from you. One of you fill in, give us the golfer analogy. Yeah, as the basic concept is, not only are you competing for the lowest score like a traditional golf game, but they're going to set a par value that you must achieve underneath. Um, so. You know, if you're going to play 18 holes, they might say you have to shoot under 50 in order to even participate. And as the person that comes in first under that wins the game, right? Um, uh, if if not, we send you all back out and you can have another crack at it. And that's basically the, the the sort of analogy we were trying to use. I think Josh had another good one was like you're finding a needle in a haystack. And, you know, the more people that are sifting through that hay, the easier that needle's going to be to find. So in order to compensate for that, the protocol just dumps a shitload more hay on it. And it works in reverse as well. And we saw that in um, around April or May of 2021, the massive China ban. So China banned um, Bitcoin mining and we saw a massive overnight drop in hash rate. Um, and then obviously not having as much computational power thrown at the protocol trying to find um, and solve blocks, it slowed down. But just as predicted, um, within 2016 blocks, that difficulty adjustment around two weeks, it reassessed how long it took the preceding 2016 blocks to get solved. And it adjusted accordingly to compensate that we just had a whole shit ton of computational power leave the network. And it, and it behaved beautifully. It was one of the best, most rigorous tests that Bitcoin has ever gone through to, to see how we compensate and how we adjusted. So it might it might take a little bit longer than two weeks for that, you know, but it, it eventually compensated. I think it's important to under, to explain why ten minutes was chosen as well. In ten minutes, seems like it's a random choice, right? And there's a lot of blockchains like Litecoin's a good example. They'll say, "Well, our blocks are two minutes, so we're faster, better, superior to Bitcoin in some way." But the reason that ten minutes was chosen by Satoshi is because the this blockchain is decentralized. So all this information, once a block is found, it has to be disseminated across this entire network, across the entire world for all the nodes and miners to receive the information, then to start working on the correct block. So if it was shorter, many miners would be working on the block that was already solved, wasting energy. And if it was longer, then it would, I mean, potentially take too long, be very slow. So 10 minutes seems to be a very good median between disseminating these blocks, getting everybody on the same page, 
and also not making it so long that it's onerous where in order to get confirmation, which is usually six blocks, it takes, you know, an entire day or something. So the reason for the 10 minutes is basically for decentralization purposes so that everybody can be on the same page. We're not wasting energy mining blocks that have already been solved. That's basically the reason for the 10 minute period. Yeah, while, while we're on this topic of the difficulty adjustment, uh, I think it's important to note and compare it to gold and how that compares with gold. So um, as mm. the price of Bitcoin rises, we're incentivized to throw more mining. So if you're a, a mining operator, the Bitcoin, price of Bitcoin rises, that 6.25 Bitcoin reward now becomes a lot more attractive. So I'm incentivized as a um, capitalistic business to... Um, go and throw more capital at it, acquire more miners and try and improve my chances of mining the next, mining more blocks. Um, so that's why the difficulty adjustment's in, important, um, just so we don't saturate that supply like we've already touched on. But you compare that to gold. Those same incentives um, exist in, in the gold supply as well. So if I'm a gold miner and the price of gold increases, I'm incentivized to increase my production open up new mines, go and start looking at new jurisdictions um, and, and, and take on a bit more risk in order to try and up my production to, to get more gold. The, the really big um, difference between Bitcoin and gold, though, is gold has a self-cannibalistic um, nature. So as I'm incentivized to dig it out of the ground at a faster rate, I'll inevitably saturate the market with excess gold, which puts a downwards... Um, puts downwards pressure on price when we're looking at that supply-demand equilibrium. So if I have more gold to sell, I'm going to saturate that market with more supply and the price will go down. So it's a self-cannibalistic nature of gold. And that's one of the reasons why the difficulty adjustment is such a powerful concept is because Bitcoin solved that self-cannibalistic approach whereby if I'm going to throw more computational power as a Bitcoin mining facility uh, to try and up my chances um, of I can't flood the market with any excess supply because the difficulty adjustment is just going to tick-tock next block and make it harder for the whole network as a whole and continue that rate of supply of new issuance once every 10 minutes. There's no way I can throw more computational power at that and, and solve it any faster. All I'm going to do is be able to increase my chances. And this comes down to this concept of luck and hashing. So... When um, the Bitcoin network as a whole is represented by this, this um, uh, concept called hashing. So it's a, a way of just for us to visualize how much computational power is getting thrown at, at the protocol. And we call it hash rate. So that's just basically a function of how many guesses are my computers, is the computers uh, on the network taking in order to try and solve blocks. And look, I think you, you, you touched on this a bit earlier, Josh. It, it will revolve around 100% luck. So if I have 50% of the hash rate globally, um, then I would expect to solve 50% of the blocks as, as a 100% sort of luck. And obviously you can float around that, but that's how these um, mining operators um, focus on is, is that concept of over a long enough time period, I'm going to have 100% luck in solving exactly the, um, um, the percentage of hash rate that I'm throwing towards the network. I would expect to solve that same percentage worth of blocks. So I can um, then start to forecast out my capital expenditures and so forth. Now, if I, me as Daz, I run miners at home. Badass, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's something um, all Bitcoiners will probably inevitably go down and, uh, and, and try and have a crack at themselves. But um, So for, for me as an individual, though, 
I've I've done the math on it, um, and this was going back about a year. So the, I think the hash rate was even lower than it is today. Um, hash rate just keeps going up and up and up. More computational players getting thrown at this thing every day, which is just another testament to its um it, its focus in the market. But um, I'm I've done the math. If I was to throw all of my miners on full time, it would take me about eighty three years to solve a block based on one hundred percent luck. So my incentive is not there to mine on my own. Um, and that's where we introduce this concept of a mining pool. So I am better incentivized to collect, um, join up with a whole collective of other plebs. And there's um, a whole of these mining pools that, um, such like Brains is a, a great example of, of a mining pool where I point my hash rate towards that pool. And then me and many other plebs are pointing our hash rate towards that pool. And collectively, we're increasing our chances of being able to solve those blocks based on 100% luck. And then I just get a cut of basically the contribution that my hash rate um, contributed to the pool as a whole. So we're increasing our chances of monetizing in the shorter term. Um, and obviously, I'm getting uh, a percentage of the, of the total reward that I would otherwise get if I was going out on my own. But, you know, I'm, I'm way better incentivized to try and monetize that on, on a lower rate um, and, and contribute mine to the greater good rather than going out and waiting 83 years and trying to solve a block of my own. It's a good note. Um, I like you bringing up gold, and I think it's worth mentioning it because the the concept of proof of work, if you study monetary history, it's existed, you could say, forever. Proof of work underpins gold. To go back to what you said, the free market selected gold as money largely because of its intensive and predictable production cost. Like gold is very predictable and it's it's predictably hard to produce. Its supply inflation is very low and that's governed by chemistry, physics and nature, right? We've kind of upgraded that that proof of work and that predictable supply inflation into the digital realm with Bitcoin. And that's why Bitcoin's so significant. I think we should just kind of summarize this really quick here. So proof of work being the cost of having to run computers to append blocks to the Bitcoin blockchain, it validates transactions and causes us to have to expend energy to add blocks to the chain, makes it nearly impossible for malicious actors to tamper with the state of the chain. Changing anything, so even if you have a massive amount of this network power, changing anything in any one block requires you to redo all of the work in all of the blocks ahead of the block that you are trying to tamper with. So. That's why the people say that the deeper your transaction is into the blockchain, like six transactions is generally considered final settlement because it becomes exponentially harder and more in intensive to go further than six blocks or even, even six blocks is insane. But further than that becomes just unmanageably expensive to do. So that's why proof of work is such an important central piece of what makes Bitcoin this decentralized blockchain if we're going to use that word, but what separates it from all of these other ones. And if you go and look around at the rest of these things, like Ethereum has moved off of proof of work to its detriment, in my opinion, there are very few, very, very few at all. And there's nothing even that competes, not even close to the energy that Bitcoin uses to protect itself. And that's the way you should view this. The energy used is protecting your transactions from malicious actors and that's why Bitcoin security is so vastly superior to anything else that exists in the space, like by orders and orders of magnitude. 
and vastly different than anything else that exists in the digital realm. On the spectrum of whatever immutability means, the most unchangeable digital thing, Bitcoin is the most unchangeable digital thing in the world today. Nothing else is even close. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why it has value because of its constancy. And there's no, there's no, you know, Josh, as you just hinted at, there's no shortcut to this. I mean, there are people that would disagree with us that would say proof of stake works. It's going to hold off. It's going to be viable long term. But the reason I, I think so many people are so enamored with and committed to, to Bitcoin primarily is because nothing else to me and the it, it, based on the research i've done has proven that it's going to stay immutable into perpetuity other than something that's tethered to real world energy output right. has one foot in the digital one foot in the physical and and that's bitcoin yeah i was going to just add as well that is one thing that i think is truly fascinating is the fact that bitcoin is the first truly scarce instant we've ever had ever in history even even gold we may have uh, a predictable inflation rate of around like one to three percent, depending on the year and how many miners there are. But there's no, uh, we cannot prove that there is not going to be an asteroid out there that has freaking a hundred tons of gold that's going to land on Earth, and all of a sudden we're going to massively inflate the gold supply. And so, what I think is fascinating about Bitcoin is, for the first time ever in history, we have true scarcity. There will only ever be twenty-one million, and I think that that is fascinating. Mm. If you guys are cool with it, I think it's good, important for us to pivot to FUD from here. Um, there's a lot of people that, you know, maybe well-meaning, just maybe misunderstand what this is, why we use the energy we use for this. Um, but there's a whole lot of uh, mainstream media FUD that's been proliferating later, lately, especially about Bitcoin's energy use and uh, being bad for the environment. And I think Daz, being an electrician and understanding energy use probably better than the three of us. Um, maybe you want to take some of this off the bat. Could you give us some reasons why Bitcoin is not necessarily as detrimental to the environment as uh, mainstream media would like, to, like us to think it is? Yeah, Tom, 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 again, we keep talking about incentives, right? And, and Bitcoin by its nature is a very capitalistic beast. So we are incentivized to try and find the cheapest sources of energy in order to plug these Bitcoin miners in. And it's just the nature of, of, of how that concentrates. So for me at home in Australia, it is uneconomical for me to go and plug my miner straight into the wall at, at my base rate of energy cost. It, 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 my rate of energy cost it, um, you know, exceeds my ability to you know, sell Bitcoin. I, I, I'm better incentivized just to stack Bitcoin in that regard. So for me at a small scale, I'm actually incentivized to try and lower my energy costs and that means in inevitably trying to find um renewable sources so i've got solar on my roof to try and offset those costs and then i only run them at certain times when my solar is in excess of what my energy use is so i'm maximizing that opportunity and the same is true at a larger scale so these large mining operations they're not incentivized to mine off um off traditional sources of energy because they're becoming more and more expensive so um, coal and so forth. So uh, the incentive for these miners is to try and find wasted, trapped, or otherwise untapped energy sources. And a lot of the time, those cheaper energy sources are renewables. So we see time and time again, more and more of these examples of Bitcoin mining rigs um, being plugged into, um, you know, help monetize some of these capital projects particularly as we shift into the renewable space. And I'll give you a little 
analogy just here in in Australia. So we've got uh, in the state of Queensland where I live, we've got this Queensland Energy Jobs Plan. By the year, I think it's 2038, they want to be completely 100% renewable, um, which you know some would argue um, is a, is a major risk. But I will give them uh, a little bit of credit because we do have um, access to a lot of renewables here, and we can argue whether solar panels are good or bad, net good or bad for the environment, net good, profitable uh, for the credits. But you're pushing that aside. This is the way that governments are are, are starting to head globally. Um, now, in order to maintain a nice base level of supply for electricity, we need to have at least, if, if wind is 30% efficient at best and solar is 19% efficient at best, we're going to need a grid that is three times our maximum demand. So maximum demand is basically what in the industry we write. If everybody goes home in the afternoon, they all turn on their air conditioners, their lights, they turn on their ovens, they start cooking dinner. That maximum demand is what we need to have generational capacity in the grid in order to maintain. Now, if we're going to go to um, 100% renewable, we're going to need to have a grid that's three times the size of our maximum demand. But if you're going to build out the capital projects in order to um, to have three times of that maximum demand, how is who's going to pay for that? Ultimately, it's rolling back to the taxpayer to, to right. float those costs. Whereas this is where the use case for Bitcoin mining comes into play because we can then connect up to the grid, these Bitcoin miners, and we can soak up that excess demand. So when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing and everything's rosy, we can have a portable, um, you know, controllable load base in order to be able to soak up that excess um, energy capacity and start to monetize that, the capital expenditure that was taken in order to build out that grid to such a massive scale. When a... When um, a storm blows through and big clouds blow through, and all of a sudden we've lost a lot of that generational capacity, we can send a message to those miners to turn off instantaneously. Now, this is a demand response that we've never been able to see before in any market. Traditionally, we used to use um, aluminium smelters and stuff like that, very similar, big load bases, but we can't just turn them on and off on a dime. They take hours to ramp up, hours to ramp down, let alone what they do with their processing. Sometimes it's inconvenient for us to send them a signal to ramp down for those demand responses. But with Bitcoin mining, and this is even a, a, a difference with data centers, data centers uh, are used for this concept as well. But unlike AWS or Amazon Web Services, you can't just switch Amazon Web Services off because there's real world applications needing to use that data center. Whereas Bitcoin miners, it doesn't fucking matter. We can turn them off straight away and as we saw with the 2021 mass China mining um, exodus, it just keeps on going. So we can have that demand response, and that's what makes it so powerful. So I guess all of that was a really big way of saying that inherently we're incentivized as miners to go and seek out the cheapest sources of energy, and that is generally spare capacity or otherwise wasted energy. Okay, to wrap a little bit of that and then come at the energy from a different angle. First, I'm going to chime in on a couple of things you just said. Bitcoin already is, Bitcoin mining already is sustainable and renewable rich. Bitcoin mining has proven on this giant free market of proof of work that is Bitcoin mining, that it tends to seek sustainable and renewable rich energy production. Why? Most renewable energy sources are extremely intermittent. Solar, wind, okay, are, are the two prominent example. And Bitcoin is an incredibly flexible buyer of energy 
Bitcoin monetizes stranded energy instantly anywhere in the world at the same rate without any need for infrastructure. It's, it's an insanely unique buyer of energy that tends to be a natural free market subsidy for renewable energy. Very important point. But I want to pivot a little bit because I'm not sure it's an important component of Bitcoin. It has huge implications on the energy market, and it's a marvelous thing for humanity. But I'm not sure it's even the best place to start when we talk about energy. And there's two places I want to go to, to roll back a second. The first is, is Bitcoin mining worth it? Even if this thing was spitting off abhorrent amounts of CO2 and methane, so are all kinds of other things that we're, we're doing. Is Bitcoin mining worth it? Obviously, the free market is saying, yes, proof of work is the solution, in our opinion, to non-sovereign, radically decentralized digital commodity money, an incredibly important use case. So I would argue it's worth it. The second question you have to ask is if you're worried about Bitcoin mining and energy use and you say, we need to regulate this, this should be illegal. You have to ask yourself a very broad question about the regulation of energy usage in society. Should policymakers make judgments, value judgments on what is good energy usage and bad energy usage? Let's think about all kinds of other things that are energy intensive. Christmas lights, cat videos, pornography, your Netflix streaming. We talked about this earlier in the episode. Digital things require real-world energy output. Are we really going to live in a dystopian future where policymakers and regulators tell you what you can and can't use energy for? I find Bitcoin incredibly valuable because of what I just said before. It's the solution to massive monetary problems that are some of the biggest our species is encountering currently. One of the biggest problems in the world this is presenting a solution to. And it requires energy output to create that solution. And I value that. And you're telling me I can't do that? So you almost have to, yes, this could be marvelous for decarbonizing and for subsidizing renewables, but let's go one step further and say that even if that wasn't the case, this would still be important and valuable. Awesome. Yeah, and I was going to add one more point on that, which are, well, actually two points you just kind of briefly touched on, Dan, which is more the philosophical argument of uh, energy usage. And I think that this is where people don't necessarily step back and actually dig deep into the question that they are asking. And that is where all of us, no matter who we are, every single thing we do, we consume energy. If I want to go and walk out the door and go and walk the dog, I have to consume energy in the form of calories in the form of food. If I want to drive somewhere, I'm consuming gasoline to get somewhere. If I want to do a credit card payment, well, Visa is consuming credit card through, uh, energy through the merchants and so on. And so when people say that the Bitcoin consumes energy, what they are forgetting is that everything consumes energy. And so by saying that, it is a hypocritical response. I think that people really need to step back and say, in reality, there is a subjectivity to value. Now, some people may say Bitcoin is wasteful. That's totally fine. They can go and say that. But they cannot say that everyone thinks Bitcoin is wasteful. Mm. Everyone has usage for different things. And the analogy I like to give is, if I live in the Sahara Desert and it's freaking 40 degrees, I don't need a down jacket. I'm not going to spend money on a down jacket, so I think it is wasteful. But if I live in Siberia... I'm very much going to want one of these down jackets. And when we see the world trending towards overbearing government and a deterioration in our money and hyperinflation and so on, all of a sudden you start to realize that Bitcoin offers value and many people see that value. If you benefit from the current system and you're already a billionaire, you may not see that value and that is totally fine, but you cannot say that other people don't see that value. And then the second point I wanted to add, which you guys kind of danced around a little bit, which is, for the first time in history, 
Bitcoin gives us the ability to monetize energy. Previously, if we've ever had energy, we have to sell that energy to someone who then uses it. And so even within the example that Daz gave with an aluminum smelter, we can sell them the energy, but they're making aluminum and then selling the aluminum. Whereas for the first time in history, we can actually take energy and then we can turn that energy into money. Now that is phenomenal. If you are a dam and your local community only uses 40% of your dam's energy, then all of a sudden, what are you doing with the rest of that 60%? It's being wasted. So Bitcoin, you monetize that 60%, which lowers the community's cost of energy because you've been able to subsidize their energy. And that is phenomenal. And so for the first time in history, Bitcoin allows us to monetize energy. And I think to be, for me, that is one of the most powerful coins of Bitcoin that people struggle to grasp if they're not Bitcoiners. Yeah. And this, there's all kinds of projects going on in Africa right now that wouldn't be possible without Bitcoin mining. Like maybe they can't build this hydroelectric dam because there's no one to buy the energy. But Bitcoin is a buyer of energy no matter what. So you know now, like if I'm going to expend this money to build this project and I know that there's going to be a buyer of the energy. So now I can create a project that couldn't have happened before and I can bootstrap energy to the people of the area or maybe even create a town that couldn't have, couldn't have existed before Bitcoin just simply because there is a buyer for this energy that will be produced because of it. Or in, you know, in the Sahara, there could be a solar panel complex that couldn't have existed otherwise. And I'm sure there's a myriad of other ways that this could be bootstrapped to create cities that simply couldn't have existed before. And then if you look at a map, traditionally cities are existing on large bodies of water, rivers and all those types of things. And mostly that's, that's for power production. That's for transportation. Now, this is a way for a reason for energy to, to be produced in places it wouldn't have before. This just enables humanity to live in places we maybe not or wouldn't have lived in before. So it's, it's basically a buyer of energy, guaranteed. Uh, it's a free market subsidy for, free, for clean energy. It takes advantage of stranded energy, and it uses energy that otherwise would have been wasted. So this baseload energy for not using it all, Bitcoin miners can eat it up, and it doesn't get wasted because otherwise it literally just gets wasted. There's nothing, if there's nothing to use the energy, it, it doesn't get stored anywhere. I could hijack a whole episode on some of the use cases for these renewables and stuff, but I'll, I'll, I'll just leave it at one of the uh, biggest costs for getting energy to anybody is the grid itself. Uh, so you get a lot of these renewables projects, um, and, and same thing with, with our examples in Africa, like you had a energy source, which is a, a river, a running, a running river. Um, the act of... Well, just just in, in, in the nature of water falling down from point A to point B, there's potential energy there that can be captured. It's kinetic energy. And um, if you can use that to spin a turbine, you've got energy. But one of the, why it hasn't been tapped into it before is the expense by which it costs to get that energy to people, which is, which is typically a grid. Now, I'm intimately familiar with this because this is where I work in, in energy distribution and transmission. So I work on these projects for these large-scale solar or wind um, projects to be able to tie into the grid. They have to build a substation and they have to step up that energy. So you're normally generated at, say, you know, anywhere from sort of 3 kilovolts um, to 20 kilovolts. And then they've got to step that up to like typically 132 or 275 kilovolts, which requires hundreds of millions of dollars, tens of millions into hundreds of millions of dollars worth of infrastructure just to be able to do that. And this is where some of these um, 
trapped energy or potential energy sources like solar farms out in the middle of the desert and so forth like it's it's great to go and think about chucking a billion solar panels out there to capture some of that wasted energy that's just bouncing off the face of the earth but if you've got nowhere to transport it then it's it's not it's not worthwhile so that's another use case for where bitcoin mining can come into play you you go and you park these portable containers on site you start soaking up that energy you start capitalizing monetizing that energy and then you use that to then go out and build out your grid and connect the people up, uh, you know, connect that energy up to the people who are going to use it. No, and I think there's there's one other, which is kind of building on what you're talking about, Daz, which is, and those that are in the Bitcoin community are probably familiar with this, which is the flare stacks. And I think this is fascinating yes. because if anything, this is carbon negative. Now, although I don't necessarily buy into the whole carbon FUD, uh, if, if we want to go down the political route, this is carbon negative because, so you've obviously seen many of these big, uh, fossil fuel operations, you'll see the flare stacks. Sometimes if you're flying over the Middle East, you'll see the, the flame being f- uh, fired up into the air. Now, what's, what's happening there is when they're going down and they're drilling or they're fracking, you're getting excess natural gas or methane being let out of the ground. Now, you could, cap- you, you could put that into a pipe and then send that somewhere and use that, but the problem is it's too costly to do so. It's actually cheaper for them just to basically get a lighter, set it on fire, and just burn it off. <laughs> now, the problem is you're letting immense particulate and uh, emissions into the atmosphere and so what people have recognized is they can cap these put basically a bitcoin miner on top take that energy and use it to run a miner instead of just burning it off into the atmosphere now you're reducing the emissions that are being let up into the atmosphere you're also creating energy that you're using to turn into money which is lowering the cost of energy to everyone else and so this is where i don't think people realize how incredible this invention of monetizing energy directly is i think it's fascinating yeah i actually have a stat here in 2020 1.48 billion cubic feet of natural gas was flared or vented and that is about 150 terawatt hours worth of energy which is actually quite close to the the total of all of bitcoin mining obviously you can't monetize all that but it just gives you a, a metric to latch on to that gives you a, just a tiny clue in yeah. one area into how much energy gets wasted. And that's the thing is wasted energy is cheap energy. That's one way to think about it. And Bitcoin is going to be like a fly to the light towards wasted energy and cheap energy. And so, yeah, it could have decarbonizing effects. It's going to have and is currently having subsidy effects for renewables. I mean, this is where it's like Bitcoin is not how it first appears. It's just this giant mind fuck of it looks one way at first and then actually when you dive in it's the other and it looks like it could be net negative for the environment and even if you you're buying into the environmental narrative and you're really concerned about that i think there's a lot of evidence out there that it suggests it's going to be the exact opposite it's going to be a wonderful gift to kind of usher us into a cleaner energy future right you're going to need incentives the economics speak you're going to need the economics to work and this is one thing that's that's added to the toolkit that's going to allow for that. This is actually making it economical to go to landfills and collect the methane that is off-gassing out of these things and run them through a generator, which, by the way, if you're wondering, why is it better to burn this fuel and you know, Bitcoin mine versus just flare it? Because flaring is massively dirtier than running it through a generator. The output emissions from that is much cleaner than just burning it open in the atmosphere. But yeah, there's going to be a lot. There's a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are obviously incentivized to make money, who see all these things, like including, like I just mentioned, like burning the methane out of a waste dump so that people aren't having to smell this crap 
it's getting burned. It's a cleaner method for getting rid of the methane and it's profitable. So again, just like mining, um, using energy in the most efficient way is people are incentivized to do that. One of the most um, hilarious bits of FUD that gets spread around is how the mining in it themselves are, are carbon emitting, right? And it's, um, there's been a heap of funny memes just kicking around lately, just like comparing it. It's no, it's no different to an electric car. So electric cars are celebrated as being these massively carbon offsetting, I know. you know, low emitting things. But at the end of the day, you're going in, you're plugging it into your wall, which is plugged in to the grid, to the coal plant, you know, because uh, that still forms a large part of our baseload supply is, is these dirty, quote unquote, sources of of energy but you know just the act of plugging in your electric car that's all batteries is is deemed to be completely green so you know it's no different like bitcoin miners emit no more or no less carbon than your electric vehicle plugging it into the wall because we're just plugging into the same sources of energy as as every other green piece it's just an electrical piece of equipment um it just so happens that we are incentivized to try and seek out like co co-opting with 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 these energy sources and and different different um sources of free or trapped energy where we're inherently incentivized to just go and park ourselves there and try and get on the other side of the meter um in order to just get first access to that energy which is otherwise wasted when i think you you mentioned that bitcoin is uh, no more or no less than the traditional evs which is interesting because when you look at, say, the Bitcoin Mining Council, they've come out with a few stats that kind of show that Bitcoin in comparison to the average US grid uh, kind of participant is actually like quite a bit below in terms of renewables because it is seeking out that cheap energy, which I think is fascinating. Sorry, I should, I should qualify that with, um, with the fact that if I'm just to plug it into the wall, I should, I should clarify that because inherently you're, you're right. We're we are 100%. a lot greener. But if you are just to take a, a mining rig and plug it straight into your wall at home, it is no more or no less than any other electric device, such as an electric car. But uh, keep keep going on what you were saying, Seb. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, 100%. Yeah, there was the one last point we're just going to add, which I think is fascinating, is there's another Bitcoiner called Jason Williams. And a little while back, this is probably like two years ago, I listened to a podcast and he was discussing how he mines Bitcoin. And he has got a, he basically takes car tires, which are incredibly costly to break down and recycle because you've got metal in there, you've got petroleum products, you've got plastics, you've got all of these different things. And he is then able to heat them up, break them down into their constituent parts, and then use the off gases as energy to run Bitcoin miners. Now, previously, we didn't have an affordable way to recycle car tires. It was basically net negative just because it was costing us a hell of a lot of money to be able to do so. And now you can basically monetize the recycling of car tires. And so this is where like, for the first time in history, this monetization of energy, we were able to monetize so many uh, recycling, renewable, whatever it may be, areas of society that previously we had no capability of doing so because it would have cost us energy to do so or cost us money to do There's so. An- another really great example of that, um, I forget the guy's names again, uh, Nathan, I think he's been on um, Peter McCormack's pod quite a few times. I think you guys might have even had him on with the uh, deep ocean. Um, the concept of harnessing the differences in temperature with deep ocean rigs and again it's this this concept is there's an energy source there you can basically tap into the differential between the ocean temperature at its surface to the deep ocean temperature to drive convection through through heat transfer and you can use that to drive a turbine um we've never tapped into that because there's nobody living in the in the middle of the ocean right so we've never been able to um 
even consider that at large scale because the economics just didn't weigh up to be able to even build a prototype that made that worthwhile tapping into. Whereas these guys are saying now, okay, well, we'll just use this very portable, very flexible um, energy monetization strategy, plonk some containers on, go and park this out in the middle of the ocean and let's build this thing. Let's see if it's viable. Let's build, see if it's scalable. And then you, know, you can you know, reissue that, that capital, that, that monetization, in order to potentially build out a grid. So we go and park this thing out in the middle of the ocean. All I then need is an undersea transmission cable and I can use some of those profits from that mining facility to go and build that out. And then, you know, these prototypes are then all of a sudden viable. Um, there was another really good example of using, you know, desalination plants are really, really um, energy intensive, right? So it's, a, it's another way of uh, finding abundant energy sources out in the middle of nowhere. And we can start to, I think you were touching this just before, Josh, it's going to totally upend how um, we as humans congregate within these you know cities are getting more and more um congested and it's becoming harder and harder particularly with resources but if we're able to then monetize some of these energy sources out in the middle of nowhere that's basically where humans always tend to flourish is around sources of energy um traditionally it was you know access to ports yes. and so forth so we could get food and commerce through through the um you know th through the sea uh but now if we can all of a sudden start to um, harness some of these energy sources, we can then use bigger scale build outs of these energy sources. We can start to look at desalination plants. We can start to build out and, and create new economic centers for humans to move to, and we can get out of these congested... Um, I mean, that's a really high level. I think um, uh, Brandon Quitten, uh, I think is the guy who speaks to that really eloquently um, in, a, in a McCormack um, uh, podcast. Everyone should go and check that out, actually, because he's, he's got some phenomenal thoughts around how... Bitcoin mining in particular mm. is just going to upend how we see, and it, it could potentially ruin real estate as an investable option, like when you think about that. I mean, CK Snarks, when he was on here, he likes to get provocative, as he said. And uh, one of the most provocative things he said with us is he thinks that Bitcoin's implications could be bigger on energy for humanity than they are on money. That's how significant he views this. And, you know, we said this when we started this conversation, like, this thing is just this endless spiral. And when you really start diving into proof and work and mining, it's when the, like you, you get into this new labyrinth, like you're in the Bitcoin cave and you turn this corner, you make this little squeeze and the whole thing opens up and there's all these crazy stalactites and everything. That's kind of what the energy thing was for me. Like I understood proof of work was important. I got to that point and I made the squeeze. I got into the cavern and I was like, holy shit, this is going to do all this stuff with energy. Um, but at the very least, if, if, a lot of what we've explored is just new ideas and we're just getting the wheels turning for you. It's something you need to look into the, 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 the presupposition or the immediate conclusion that Bitcoin just uses a bunch of energy and is, is really bad for carbon emissions and all that. There's a lot of really responsible people that disagree. And in a lot of ways, the, the, the energy market disagrees based on some of just the facts we outlined about how this is being used, where it's being used and, 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 and how it could both decarbonize, use excess wasted energy, and more holistically, expand energy production, unleash creativity with energy, which is absolutely vital. Human flourishing and energy production are so closely tied. We've talked about this on this show a lot, but if you look at GDP and the amount of energy consumption per capita, 
man, do they trace each other closely. So if you look at a an impoverished rural African, they probably have access to very little energy. And if they have access to it, it's probably very expensive. That's one of the main reasons they're disenfranchised. And this is the sort of technology that's going to unleash creativity and productivity on the energy front in a very significant and meaningful way. I don't know where we end this one, guys. I mean, I, I don't I don't mean to throw a cap on it, but uh, yeah, I've got a lot more. I'm Josh, just, what do you dude, got? Here, so here's the I really wanted to get to talking about proof of work versus proof of stake. But I think maybe we'll just put a cap on that and wait for the uh, the shitcoin type episode to make that comparison. Yep. Um, I like. It. Yeah, I think that uh, we covered this pretty substantively uh, from beginning to end. And I know this is a lot to take in, especially when you start thinking about hash functions nonces and all of these other terms that a lot of people probably aren't very familiar with again if you you know we'll we'll put some links in the show notes to places where you can learn about this more comprehensively because this is maybe not the best format for that because it's just audible but um yeah once you do start understanding that even at a very cursory level a lot of this stuff makes a lot more sense and especially i I think it's important too. this last part we talked about the energy expenditure and how this is a beneficial thing for humanity on net, in my opinion, even if you believe that energy, um, energy use is generally bad because it's bad for the environment. There's a lot of ways in which this could actually be a positive thing for the environment. Um, and I hope that we went through all those in a way that made sense. Daz or Seb, close us out here. Uh, what do you guys want to say to end? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go first. Um, and I'll just dovetail this, this final thought in as well. And, and it's, this sort of just speaks to a lot of the conversations I have, um, particularly in my workplace, right? I'm just trying to get this into the forefront of people to start thinking about, uh, as far as an energy grid and energy utility companies concerned. And, um, one of the, the first things that, um, gets thrown back at me is, is it's not needed. Um, and that's coming from a, you know, we've already spoken about it, um, but it's coming from a real place of financial privilege. Um, and I would just has it, I would just push back on anybody who, who comes at me with that argument um, that if this were able to, you know, enable refugees to cross borders um, or escape these authoritarian controls with the ability to hold their net wealth within 12 words within their head, what amount of energy is that worth? Um, you know, if, if you're able to save one fucking life, how much energy is that worth? And anyone who speaks down to this protocol and, and what it does and coming from that energy perspective fails to understand how that compares to anything else, whether it's, you know, watching YouTube shorts or TikTok or gaming, you know, what, what value is that adding to humanity? Whereas this is really changing. It's, it's giving the bank, the unbanked banking facilities and it's allowing people to, escape those authoritarian controls um and there's so many examples of it doing mm. just that and i think that alone is you can't put a price on that right it's you can't put a price on human flourishing and if anything uh, i'll just i'll just i'll just finish all this thought up with just saying mining is honestly uh the game changer uh for why this thing's going to survive um we've touched on most of those reasons uh today and if we've piqued your interest, we've done our job. Um, there's plenty of resources. We we we've barely scratched the surface on this, honestly. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll just I'll just sign off with that with that note. We'll throw some more resources in uh, into the show notes. I've got a ton of them, and um, just start your journey because this is only scratching the surface. Yeah, no, I was going to add one more point, which we discussed before the uh, the podcast, and then kind of uh, glossed over it, which is that we at Looking Glass have just finished writing a book. 
And this book is it's called Beers for Bitcoin. Uh, and, th- and we discuss mining quite heavily in there. So if you guys want to dive more into the, the mechanism of the hash function and the mechanism of how miners kind of append blocks to the blockchain and so on, we lay, lay it out from start to finish. We dive into, and obviously the book isn't just about mining, it's about the whole holistic look at Bitcoin. So you look at Satoshi, who is Satoshi? We go through an overview of what this thing called Bitcoin is. We dive into supply and demand, the, the difficulty adjustment. We dive into how to purchase Bitcoin and so on. It's meant to be a, a holistic kind of Bible of sorts for those that are interested and want to understand Bitcoin to a deeper level. So you can find that on Amazon. There's ebook version. There is physical version. Beautiful. Uh, that would be available by the time this episode is out. So yeah. Cool. We'll link to that in the show notes and make sure we get uh, that in front of people. Sorry, there's um, there's uh, two books there, Beers for Bitcoin. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't grab that by the time we went to the publishers. Um, but uh, the Beers for Bitcoin uh, children's book, grab that one as well. Um, but ours is the one with the orange cover, so um, with the big B on the front. So not to not to be confused, just to let you know, there are two versions of uh, a book out there called Beers for Bitcoin. You guys are working on a children's book too, though, as well. <laughs> no, we're leaving that to the professionals. We were playing around with one, and then we were like, you know what, let's just stay in our lane. Josh, should we write a children's book with just a ton of profanity in it? Just like a bunch of F-bombs and shit? Yeah, yeah I think we should. Yeah, I mean, we'll a- write it at a firefighter level, you know? It'll be a children's book <laughs> yeah. aimed at 30-somethings. Teach them about Bitcoin. If you want your children to be degenerate firemen, this is what you feed exactly. them. Have, have you guys seen that children's book? What is it? It's called Go the Fuck to Sleep. I have seen that. I have that <laughs> yeah, book. It's hilarious. <laughs> Oh, I'm living that right now. And uh, yeah, when you have kids, you'll understand. Gents, uh, great, great time. Appreciate both of you as always, and we will see you next month. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot, guys. As always, such pleasure. Cheers, boys. That's a wrap on Basics Episode 5. We hope each one of you took something from it. As mentioned off the top, we have the whole series wrapped together on our website, and you can find that down in the notes. More generally speaking... If you're picking up what we're putting down here at BCB, do us the favor of taking a brief moment out of your day to subscribe, leave us a review on Apple or your platform of choice, or check us out on YouTube if you prefer video. We're on all Podcast 2.0 platforms, our favorite of which is the Fountain app. Alrighty, do us a favor this week, keep it real, nothing fake folks, and we'll see you next week on Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. 